Good morning again, uh, everyone. If you would grab a Bible and turn to Acts chapter 17, that's where we are going to be for the next little while. Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 15. Let me begin by reading this passage aloud. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So shortly after World War I, uh, an advertising firm in London hired uh, a young woman named Dorothy Sayers to write slogans uh, to sell merchandise. And Sayers quickly learned how gullible people can be. She entered advertising and learned we are gullible. With a few catchy words, she noted that she could get people, for example, to buy soap. It didn't matter how many bars of soap they had in full boxes in the basement. Slogans worked. She could convince people to buy things that they didn't really need. Now, years later, she looked back at her experience in advertising, and she lamented the state of the modern mind. Listen to what she asked. She asked this question. She says, has it ever struck you as odd or unfortunate that today, when the proportion of literacy throughout Western Europe is higher than it has ever been, people should have become susceptible to the influence of advertisement and mass propaganda to an extent hitherto unheard of and unimagined? It has been a century since Sayers took that job at that advertising firm, but I would say the average American is probably no more discerning today than the English were a century ago. With social media, uh, we read more words than what we've ever read before, but we often don't read carefully. We often don't read critically. So let's just face it, there's a reason Russia thought a Facebook ad buy could influence an election. People are not all that discerning. The church, however, needs to be different, right? We are a people of the book, the Bible, and that makes us a people of words. We write words, we read words, all in light of capital T, truth, the truth of God's Word. Friends, there are not many groups of people on the planet today who come back week after week to hear a long sermon. The explanation for this is certainly not my eloquence. Simply, don't need to laugh at that. <laughs> right? It's simply a, a response to the reality that we are a people of capital T, truth. We believe there is truth, and so we come together to try and understand that truth better. And so we are not to be blown uh, back and forth by the latest fads, the latest trends, the latest philosophies. Scripture is our north star. And as Psalm 119 says, we, we read it a few moments ago. Uh, many of us have sung songs uh, based upon the words of Psalm 119, that the Word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so this morning, we find a synagogue of people who know how to use Scripture to assess and weigh and filter what they hear. They are the Bereans of ancient Macedonia. 
and we can learn from them. That is our aim, to be such a people. And that's the thrust of today's message. I'm going to give the thrust of the message in the form of an imperative. Here it is. Church, be discerning. Be discerning because we have God's Word, which is truth worth dying for. Church, be discerning because we have God's Word, which is truth worth dying for. Now, before diving into our passage, let me bring all of us up to speed. We are in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. It started in Acts 15.36 when Paul and Barnabas decided that they would visit the churches that God had recently used them to to plant, uh, churches in what's now Turkey. Paul and Barnabas, though, split up. Paul travels with Silas and later Timothy and later Luke, the author of Acts, Luke, the author of Acts, Acts being the book, obviously, that we're studying now, this history, this record of the early church, God sends Paul and his team uh, to Macedonia, which is now modern-day Greece. And in Greece, Paul travels from city to city. He always begins his ministry by finding a Jewish audience, if he can, a group of people already familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. And wherever he goes, Paul preaches the gospel. In Philippi, you might remember, God saved Lydia, and then God saved the the jailer, then God saved the jailer's entire family. So God planted a church through Paul's preaching in Philippi. Persecution arose, and so Paul and his team traveled to Thessalonica. There God saved a man by the name of Jason, who seems to be a very brave man who opened up his home to Paul and his team and sort of negotiated the safety of these apostolic visitors with the governing authorities. Persecution flared up, though, and and Paul needed to flee once again. And that brings us to our passage, Acts 17, verse 10. Paul and his team, they, they sneak away again. Verse 10 says that the Thessalonian believers sent them away by night by night, meaning it was dangerous to go by day, right? The gospel was stirring up lots of controversy at this stage in church history, especially among a Jewish audience who recognized that the gospel of Jesus Christ was simply incompatible with their understanding of the Old Testament scriptures, whereby these Jewish individuals rejected Paul's preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. And so this reality faces Paul wherever he goes. So they flee southwest to about 50 miles to this town of Berea, a relatively small city Uh, like Thessalonica. Berea had a large Jewish population, and once again, Paul goes to the synagogue. Now, Luke says that the Bereans wanted to hear him. Before they even knew the Lord, they wanted to hear Paul. It says, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. Now, that phrase, more noble, literally means of noble birth, but he's not talking about, Luke isn't talking about their their heritage. He's talking about their, their willingness to listen their open-mindedness. Uh, they were, in that sense, the expression we might use is they were, they were noble-minded in the sense that they were willing to pause and, and listen to another point of view. And so Luke praises these Bereans for their eagerness to listen to someone with whom they might not immediately agree. But of course, they did more than listen. The text says they tested what they heard. They carefully examined what they knew to be true, the Old Testament. They carefully examined what they knew to be true, the Old Testament, and they compared it with what they didn't know to be true, Paul's word, Paul's preaching, his gospel message. And they listened, and they studied, and then according to verse 12, many of them therefore believed. 
And it's not just some in the synagogue of Jewish background who believed. It says that many of the the leading women, many of the women of high standing, uh, they believed as well, and not a few of the Greek men. So the gospel preached by Paul in the synagogue did what Paul knew it would do. It bore fruit within the synagogue and outside of the synagogue. Now, verse 13 is really same story, different chapter, different verse that we've been experiencing as we've worked through Paul's first missionary journey, now his second missionary journey, right? The Jews who persecuted Paul in Thessalonica caught wind that Paul was preaching this gospel in Berea, and so they traveled 50 miles to put it to a stop. They they, they, they heard about the candle of Christianity now burning in Berea, and they wanted to blow it out. And so they came, and their, 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 their method of disrupting the gospel was to basically get people in the city upset. And so Luke doesn't go into details of exactly how they stirred up the crowd, but again, if you've been tracking through Acts very long, you recognize that lots of accusations were made about Christians They were untrue. They're here to disrupt your economy. You know, they don't care about you. They don't care about authority. They don't care about about the Roman Empire. And so they stir up the crowd. And so eventually, Paul has to leave. By this point, it's obvious that the main target is on Paul's back because Paul is the one who boards a ship. He goes to sea, boards a ship, and a few of the Bereans go with him, and they accompany him to Athens. But at this point, Silas and Timothy, they remain in Berea, So presumably it's not as dangerous for them, and they're going to teach, and they're going to disciple and evangelize as long as they possibly can. And so that's our passage, okay? Uh, Much could be said. I would say that the heart of this text, as I understand it, is really verse 11. Verse 11, so really the the, the majority of the message that I have for you uh, from this text comes really from verse 11. Uh, throughout church history, the Bereans have been held up as an example for believers about how we are to engage whenever we are taught the Bible. I would argue whenever we are taught anything, but that would make this into a much longer and different sermon. So I'm going to focus in this message on how we engage when we're taught about Christianity from sermons like the one I'm giving you now from books, from articles, from podcasts. The Bereans have been an example now for a couple thousand years of of how believers ought to engage with Christian teaching. And I I pray that this message is is good for your soul. Uh, It it might seem a little more teachy because I I want to exhort you to, to listen well. So it might be a slightly less inspirational message, though I certainly wouldn't mind if any of you were inspired. But it might be slightly less inspirational and slightly more instructive. I have four points. And again, remember, this is where we're going. Church, be discerning. Because we have God's Word, which is truth. It doesn't contain truth. The Word of God is truth. And it is worth dying for. All right, I have four points. I'm going to give them to you one at a time. Uh, I will try to be clear when the second point comes. I can't promise that there won't be second points within the first point, but, you know, stay awake. What can I say? Uh, First point, Christian Scripture is the Old and New Testament. Christian Scripture is the Old and New Testament. Now, this may seem like a strange place to start. It is important that we begin with the basics, right? First century believers, first century believers had the Old Testament, but the New Testament was in the process of being written, right? So as Paul is traveling, literally the New Testament is being written. The the, the process of the church coming to understand and to recognize the words of the apostles as authoritative, as having divine authority as Scripture, well, that process is on display in our passage. And it was a careful and a gradual process. So just look at our text. Paul brought a word to Berea, a word, verse 11, 
a word. Now, this word we know to be the message of Christianity. By this time, Luke knows that his readers know what he means when he writes Paul's words. Because this is what Paul has been preaching all along. It is the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? And, and as an apostle, wherever Paul went, Paul spoke with authority. He had been commissioned by God to deliver the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, when I speak to you behind this pulpit with a big old Bible in front of me, there's a sense in which I'm speaking to you with authority. But you recognize, of course, that the authority that I'm addressing you is not the same authority as that wielded by the Apostle Paul. You know, Paul spoke with kind of a, thus saith the Lord. I've received this message directly from, from God, and I'm now giving it to you. He'd been commissioned by God to deliver this unique good news of Jesus Christ, and his words were to be received as words of life. And he told the Bereans what God told him to say. Now, but to the Bereans, who were just faithful Jews sitting in their synagogue, presumably on Saturday, you know, going there for a message of some kind, uh, Paul was just another teacher. Uh, clearly, there's some reason they, they, they gave him some time. There must have been something about Paul, his reputation, his style, I don't know. There's something about Paul, perhaps just a divine work of God, you know, opening the hearts of the leaders of the synagogue to allow Paul to speak. But in any event, they were just there to hear another message. Paul was just another teacher. Uh, Paul's word was not their final authority. Their authoritative word was rolled up on scrolls and stuck in a box in the synagogue. It was what we call the Old Testament. It was the, the, the Scriptures. That's why the word Scriptures is used there in verse 11. Right? So in verse 11, the, the Scriptures refer to the Old Testament, uh, the, the, the law, the prophets, the writings. Psalm 119 would have been part of the writings Okay, and the, the, the Jewish people have come to refer to that as the Tanakh, right? or the Hebrew Bible. We simply call it the, the Old Testament. And the, these Berean Jews, they, they trusted the Tanakh. And when Paul came teaching, they had to decide whether or not what Paul was saying was in fact true. And verse 11 says, they began to examine the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Okay, now, now what are these things? What are the things that they were examining to see if they were so? Right, the, the things is referring to Paul's teaching about the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus of Nazareth. Right, the message of Jesus as God in the flesh. Jesus who lived a perfect life who died on the cross in the place of sinners like you and like me. Jesus who conquered death through that spectacular resurrection. And this Jesus who's coming back to judge the living and the dead. This Jesus who offers everlasting life to anyone and everyone who would call him Savior and Lord. Right, so these are the things that Paul is presenting to them. But I think there's more. Things also refers to the fact that Paul taught that the Tanakh, their Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, points forward to Jesus. It points forward to all of that stuff. Right? Paul argued that the Old Testament is all about Jesus. He taught that Jesus is the, the greater prophet, greater than Moses. He's the greater priest, greater than Aaron. He's the greater king, greater than David. He's the, the greater and final sacrifice, greater than the blood of countless bulls and goats. Now, I have preached on that, that last few sentences I gave you. I've been preaching on that week after week as we've been going through Acts. I'm not going to repeat all of that now, but I just want you to understand that when Paul preached the gospel in the synagogue, he preached the truth of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, and he showed how all of that can be found in the Old Testament. 
The Old Testament points forward to all of that. Those are the things that the Bereans wanted to know were true. And so they examined the Scriptures to see. So, in other words, Paul's message can't be separated from the Old Testament. They go together, two sides of the same coin. The New Testament is the fulfillment of everything promised in the Old Testament. The New Testament is proof that the God of the Old Testament is faithful. It's why Jesus said he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, Matthew 5, 17. It's why Peter, it's why Peter cited Leviticus. Like, I don't want to say none of you like to read Leviticus. Not many of you like to read Leviticus. And yet Peter cited Leviticus when he spoke to the early Christians, telling them to be holy as God is holy. Because the Christian scriptures are the Old and the New Testaments. That's 1 Peter 1.16. Now, the early church didn't have yet all the books of the New Testament the way we do, right? These books were still being written. And, and as apostles like Paul and, and Peter preached and, and wrote the gospel message to churches like the ones in Rome or in Ephesus or Philippi, or sometimes they wrote messages to people like Timothy or Theophilus or Philemon. As the apostles wrote these letters, these writings came to be read, and they came to be studied, and they came to be examined, and eventually for many, many people, they came to be accepted and believed in. You know, I recognize that in, in, in Berea, they, they weren't, Paul didn't write them a letter, he was speaking to them, but the, the basic process is there. People are listening, and they're saying, is this true? And in order to discern whether or not this is true, they went to the Old Testament Scriptures to see, to validate, to confirm. And we actually get a sense of this process as we read our New Testaments carefully. And so I want to give you a couple of examples. And um, this is a lot of fun for me, and I trust it's going to be a lot of fun for you. Not that you're here to have fun. 1 Timothy 5.17, 1 Timothy 5.17. I want to give you some examples of how the, 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 the early church came to see New Testament writings as, well, New Testament, as Scripture, as divinely authoritative. 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says... You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. All right. Uh, as someone who is fed by you, I am grateful that this is in the Bible. I don't want to talk about that right now. I simply want to note that verse 18 begins with, for the Scripture says. And Paul defends his argument in verse 17, the argument that an elder should receive double honor. He defends that with Scripture. And the first Scripture that Paul cites is Deuteronomy 25.4. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. No problem, right? Every, every Jew would have recognized Deuteronomy to be Scripture. Uh, new believers would have recognized the Old Testament to be Scripture. But then he goes on and provides another citation. And do you know where the second Scripture is from? The laborer deserves his wages. Well, some of you are looking at your Bible study notes. I won't say that's cheating because that's why they're there. Matthew 10.10. So while Paul was alive, Christians had been studying Matthew 10.10 and examining verses from the Gospel of Matthew in light of the Old Testament and eventually coming to believe that, that the Gospel of Matthew had just as much weight, just as much authority as Deuteronomy. And that is, is, is amazing. And so by the time Paul wrote to Timothy in the early 60s, that's the first century, Right? By the time he came to write to Timothy, the church clearly received Matthew's gospel as the Word of God, as Scripture. 
That's really early. Let me give you one more example. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. If you found Timothy, just head right, and eventually you're going to run into 2 Peter. Uh, it's before John. It's after James. 2 Peter 3, 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him. Now, these is, you're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. Be diligent to be found by, by Jesus, by him, without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them, in his letters, of these matters, matters pertaining to salvation. There are some things in them, Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, amen to that, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now, Peter is writing about Paul, once again, in the, in the 60s, in the first century. And Peter admits, as we would all admit, that some of Paul's letters have parts that are hard to understand and foolish people have gone to some of these difficult parts and kind of twisted them maybe to, to mean what they want them to mean. But Peter says we shouldn't be surprised because foolish people do that with the other scriptures. Do you see the implicit assumption? Paul's writings are scripture, the authoritative word of God. Paul's writing as authoritative as the Old Testament. So, so while Peter was still alive, while Paul was still alive, people were listening, they were reading, and especially those who had uh, 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 an earlier conviction that the Old Testament is the Word of God, but even young believers who had come to believe that the Old Testament is the Word of God, they're taking everything they're hearing, they're going to these scriptures, and they're coming to believe that the apostolic word is, for lack of a better word, the Bible. Now, sometimes people today argue that we got our Bible because there was a committee that was formed a few hundred years after all these events took place, and they all voted to decide which books were going to be in the Bible and which books were not going to be in the Bible, and that's just not true. It didn't happen that way. It happened as apostles lived and as they wrote and as their words were read and studied and examined the way the Bereans did in our passage today. And after they studied, something amazing happened. Acts 17, verse 12, many of them therefore believed. Now, of course, by believed, Luke means they came to saving faith, right? They became Christians. They were born again, right? Their life was turned upside down. They, they believed. But it, it's not just that. They believed that Paul's words were true. They believed that, that God had sent to them someone with, with the very words of God so that when they listened, they were hearing God's truth as authoritative, as divine, as inspired as when they listened to Deuteronomy or Leviticus, or Jeremiah being read aloud. This word is both the Old and New Testament. It is the foundation of the church. The Bible is our standard of faith and practice. It is honey to our lips, and it is music to our soul. I prayed this morning about Christians who have uh, proclaimed the Apostles' Creed, right, if you professed it, for hundreds of years, hundreds of thousands of years, uh, through plagues, through pestilence, through war. I mean, how have they done that so faithfully? How has that endured? Because God gave us a word that will not fade away. So on a hot and humid day, which we are having a lot of those right now, on a hot and humid day, after a long walk, or after a few hours in the yard, or after a game of soccer, when you're all done, nothing tastes better than a cold glass of cool water. And may that be a picture of our longing for the Word of God. Christian Scripture is the Old and the New Testament. Right, that was the first point. Here is the second. Christian teaching... Christian teaching, like what I'm doing now, should shed light on Scripture. Christian teaching 
should shed light on Scripture. Now, that first point that I've just made and spent the most time on is certainly the most important. It's the central point of our passage. Uh, Again, Luke is sharing how the Bereans came to accept Paul's words as the authoritative Word of God, as gospel truth, as the perfect fulfillment of all the Old Testament writings. And and you and I aren't in the same exact position as the Bereans. We're just just not. they, they had to accept for the very first time the gospel as the completion of Scripture. And our canon is complete. I'm never going to stand up here one Sunday morning and say, hey, guys, I found the 67th book. You know, if I ever do that, run. It's complete. We, we have no need of a, a new authoritative word. And in fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21, Paul writes that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and Christians have typically taken that to mean that the apostles and the prophets are those who have given us an authoritative word. And now that there are no more apostles and no more prophets in the sense of new revelation, our scriptures are complete. We have the whole Bible. Nonetheless, we have much, I think, to learn from the practice of these Bereans. Their example of discernment can be applied to our lives in a number of of really helpful ways. We can follow their lead in evaluating Christian teaching, whether it's from a sermon, a book, an article, again, a podcast, um, just wherever you get Christian content. The preacher in Ecclesiastes 12, 10 said, of the making of many books, there is no end. And of the tweeting of many tweets, there really is no end. You know, we're just inundated with lots of, 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 of Christian news, of, of Christian assessments of what's going on, of, of Christian interpretations of the Bible and of Christian applications of the Bible to our daily lives. And we're flooded, especially in the West, with more Christian resources that we could ever possibly consume. And so what should Christian teaching do? Well, it should, it should shed light on Scripture. That's fundamentally what what any good Christian teaching is going to do. In fact, that's what makes it Christian teaching. It's going to shed light on Scripture. Right, so if someone's talking about, I've just written a book on being a Christian chef. Well, unless you're going to tell me you're talking about just how in your own personal life as a chef, you're going to seek to honor the Lord in all your work, that's not a Christian book. Christians don't cook differently except to the glory of God. That's not what I'm talking about. Right? Good Christian teaching is shedding light on Scripture. It's illuminating what, what the Bible already says. So I'm not talking about journals that you read about on medicine or fictional novels that you might read. I'm not talking about works of American history. I'm talking about Christian teaching, teaching whose purpose is to grow you in your faith, to help you in your understanding of the Bible. And it's only good insofar as it actually sheds light on the Bible. Now, given the number of resources out there, we need to be discerning listeners and readers. And so what might that discernment look like? I want to say a couple of things about that. The first one might not be as obvious, but this is, I think, the place to start because it's clearly where the Bereans started. So I want to say first that discernment includes an eagerness to know Scripture better. Discernment, it begins with an eagerness. Now, that is not enough. I'm going to say more. (laughs) But it begins with an eagerness. Look at verse 11. They received the word with all eagerness. Now, at that moment, they weren't sure that what Paul was saying was true, but they knew that he was talking to them about the Old Testament, and they were eager to know the Scriptures better, and so they listened. The Greek word for eagerness is prothumia. Prothumia. And it can mean goodwill or willingness or readiness or eagerness. And Paul uses this word several times in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and he uses it in reference to the willingness of the Corinthians to give financially in support of the church in Jerusalem. Their willingness to give, their eagerness to give, their prothumia in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is more important to Paul than the amount they give. He's interested in their prothumia, in their eagerness. It's the prothumia that makes the gift valuable. 2 Corinthians 8, 12. For if the prothumia is there, it, the gift, is acceptable according to what a person has, 
not according to what a person does not have. Right? So the, 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 the family that's able to give you know, thousands and thousands of dollars to the church, that, that gift isn't any better than the gift given by the family who's able only to give maybe a few hundred, a few hundred dollars or even less. It's the prothumia, the eagerness, the willingness, the readiness that the Holy Spirit cares about. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Our heart for giving, our heart for giving, like financially, to the work of the Lord, is the same as our heart for receiving. We receive teaching with the same prothumia that we give money. Isn't that interesting? We're to give cheerfully and we're to receive cheerfully. We're to give with prothumia, we're to receive with prothumia. So brothers and sisters, be eager to receive the word. You don't need to remember prothumia. I just thought that was kind of interesting and perhaps helpful. But have a heart to read and to understand and to know Scripture. J.C. Ryle said that we are to arm ourselves with a thorough knowledge of the written Word of God. Read your Bible regularly. Become familiar with your Bible. And may God grant us a prothumia to receive the Word of God. Okay, that's clearly not enough. I think it's, 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 uh, it's, it's necessary but it's not enough. Second, discernment leaves you with a better grasp of what the Bible means and how it applies. This is what separates good Christian books from not-so-good Christian books. A good Christian book draws your attention to the Scriptures themselves and helps you understand its meaning and its application. Good Christian teaching does not leave you in awe of the teacher or the author, but in awe of God and of His Word. The temptation facing every Christian teacher and author is to please the listener, to please you right now, to please the reader. And so the preacher may tell stories to engage the listener, provide application to make the Bible relevant, or tell jokes to entertain. Now, I do that, and you don't even get my jokes, which is highly annoying to me. Now, there is a place for all of this in Christian teaching and writing, and none of it is inherently bad or wrong. And in fact, Jesus obviously told stories and made application. Perhaps a time or two was funny. But done poorly, these stories and jokes and illustrations can actually distract you from your Bible. And this is bad because the goal of Christian teaching is that you would know more of God's Word and ultimately more of God. Now, how do you know, how do you know if the Christian sermon you are listening to or the Christian book you are reading is, in fact, shining light on Scripture? Right? Now, there are a lot of different ways to answer this question. Uh, I would humbly suggest that you keep four questions in the back of your mind. Again, how do you know if the Christian sermon you are listening to or the Christian book you are reading is, in fact, shining a light on Scripture? I would argue it's not enough that the Bible is open. This is a good start, but it's not enough. I can open the Bible, and I can walk away from it. Not enough that the Bible is open. So here's, here's four questions. Does this sermon or book, you don't need to write all the examples I'm giving, but I want this to apply to everything, sermons you listen to, books you read, podcasts you listen to, uh, Christian videos you watch, and so forth and so on, does this sermon or book present God as sovereign and good and holy? Right? If the Bible is about God, the books and the sermons that we consume should be unapologetic about the bigness and the grandeur and the glory of God and the power of God. So I just want to know, whatever Christian literature I'm taking in, does it present a a, a picture of God as big as the Bible presents, right? That's one question. Another one, does the sermon or book or fill in the blank present humanity, present us, as fallen and sinful, right? Christian literature may say that you are broken, that you are hurt. That may be true. 
But it's not fundamental. Our fundamental problem is sin. Uh, that truth is on every page of Scripture. That our fundamental problem is not that we're broken, but that we are sinful, having rebelled against a holy and righteous God. And so, so good Christian teaching is going to make this clear. You're not going to walk away. If you're walking away from a book thinking that our biggest problem is that we're broken, I would argue it's not a good Christian book. doesn't mean there's not truth there, but there's not sufficient truth to make it worth your time. All right, uh, another question. Does the sermon or book present Christ as the only answer? Right, good Christian teaching doesn't gloss over Christ and his atoning work. I think that's one of the dangers of living in a resource-rich generation. When you're so accustomed to getting good teaching, and I'm not saying you know, merely from this pulpit, when you're just accustomed to you know, getting good teaching, it is so easy to just say, well, I know that my readers understand that Jesus is God and he died on the cross for sinners. And you're, No, you can't ever assume that. There's just not something ever to assume in Christian teaching. Good Christian teaching will always make the gospel clear. Now, some books will attend to that more than others. You might write, be writing a book or giving a talk about the gospel, in which case it's all about the gospel, but even in a book about work or about parenting, or you've got to make the atoning work of Christ clear. Otherwise, what makes your work fundamentally Christian? Another question, in fact, the last one. I think there's a lot of good ways to, to test whether or not literature or Christian teaching is good. But here's another question. Does this sermon or the book call the listener or the reader to repentance and faith? In other words... Is it clear that the only way to reconciliation with God is through Christ, and that's a message that we, we must respond to? We have to repent of our sins, to turn away from them. We've got to trust in God, right? Good Christian teaching is not going to pull any punches. Like, to live in right relationship with God and others, we have first to repent and believe, and we do this daily, right? It's not a one-time event. Justification, the, the, the moment you are right with God, well, that's a one-time event, and it's wrought by God. And it comes through repentance and faith, but the repentance and faith comes daily. Constantly submitting ourselves to the authority of our holy and good and gracious God. Okay. I'd love to say so much more about that. All of those themes are in the Old Testament. And I believe that I'm on, I'm on safe ground when I say when the Bereans were listening to Paul, they were wanting to know, is he presenting the same God that we know? Does he understand our problem? Does he understand our need for a Messiah? Does he understand that repentance and faith is our only hope? And if that teaching lines up with the Bible, well, that's good teaching. And the Holy Spirit use that teaching to lead them to believe. So I'd like to take a moment. I'm not going to spend as much time on my final two points, so don't, don't worry. I'd like to take a moment to encourage you to read good Christian books. God has blessed our generation with a number of excellent resources. And some Christians are skeptical of, of reading books other than Scripture. But I think it's foolish to neglect the wisdom of the saints who have gone before us and saints who live among us who have been given the gift of teaching or writing. You can benefit greatly from good Christian books so long as you remember not all Christian books are good. Good Christian teaching will shed light on Scripture. Now, if you're listening carefully, I've, I've asserted a lot of things, but I've really opened Pandora's box. So I hope point number three is going to help. So this is point number three. Christian teaching should be consumed in community. Christian teaching should be consumed in community. If you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably had someone come up to you and ask the question, well, how do I know your interpretation of the Bible is correct? Now, many ask this question because they see the number of Christian denominations out there, and they wonder, well, how do I choose between the Baptists and the Presbyterians and, and the Methodists and so forth? And, and the truth of the matter, I don't want to overplay this, the truth of the matter 
is that what we, Mount Vernon Baptist Church, have in common with Bible-believing evangelical Methodists and Presbyterians and Lutherans is far more than what the ways we are distinct from them. All right, in other words, other denominations who believe the Bible are able to put their faith in Christ alone and teach that and believe that, and they are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we can be thankful for Bible-centered evangelical denominations who may disagree with Baptists uh, about how you structure a church or who's the appropriate subject for baptism. But the question remains, like, how do you know your interpretation of Scripture is the right one. It's not enough, like, for the, the Baptist. Well, the Baptists scream louder. They must be right. That's, a, that's not a discerning answer. But it's a good question. Now, we know that Scripture is without error. But because this is because Scripture is God's Word, inspired by God. It's perfect and the ultimate authority over our lives. Scripture is without error. We aren't. So newsflash, you are not without error. Bible without error, you with error. Bible without error, me with error. That's just reality. We get things wrong. The Baptists and the Presbyterians cannot both be correct about who should get baptized. Now, of course, we're correct. <laughs> so what do we do? Well, again, the Bereans are a very helpful guide. Verse 11, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Notice whom received the word. They did. They did. Not, you know, not Mr. Berea or Miss Berea, but the Bereans, plural. They received God's Word. They examined the Scriptures daily. They went to the Old Testament together. They debated. They communicated. They hashed things out. And this is an example for us. We live and we study the Bible in community. We study the Bible with the community around us, right? A church is a body of believers seeking to better understand and live out Scripture. Now, it's more than that, but it's not less. We are a body committed to understanding and living out the Bible. And this is why we study the Bible together, because none of us is inerrant. We all make mistakes. We all need to be sharpened. We all have our unique blind spots. Bible study has always been a, a community project. A number of years ago, we had a, our, our local association of Baptist churches in the Atlanta area. It's called the Greater Atlanta Baptist Network. And we had uh, Al Moeller, who's the president of the seminary that I studied in, come and to give a lecture kind of on, on denominationalism. And he said, you know, one of the reasons you guys are part of this network is so you don't get weird. I'll let that sink in for a moment. So you're not weird. In other words, if you just go off entirely on your own, who knows what you're going to come up with? It's good to be sharpened by those around you, Right? Bible study has always been a community project. The, the past few, the past few uh, years at Mount Vernon, many, if not most, of our covenant groups, our small groups for members, have devoted their time to going through the sermon. Um, and what I love about this is not that people are thinking about what I said. That makes me feel a little awkward. What I love is that, that you're testing what I said or whomever happened to preach the Sunday of your study. Or you're going to Scripture, you're talking about the sermon, you're, you're seeing if, if whatever you heard is true and whether the applications made from the pulpit are accurate, and you're going to the Bible and you're, you're talking about it, you're wrestling with it, and this is a very Christian thing to do, right? Bible study is a community project. We, we study the Bible with the community around us, right? In a local church, it's why this whole COVID thing is just a pain, because there's so much value in getting into a Sunday school classroom and, 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 and having a teacher teach and having us ask questions. i got a question about that. I have a question about that. And sometimes I'll be teaching and someone asks me a question that I wasn't prepared for and it's like, oh, wow, I think I did not say that, you know, the, the best way and the most accurate way and I'm sharpened by you. It's just a valuable thing. And we're going to get there, Mount Vernon. We're going to get there again. But it's not just because we're looking for something to do at 9.15 in the morning. 
It's because we understand theologically that Bible study is a community project. We study the Bible with the community around us, but we also study the Bible with the community before us. We also study the Bible with the community before us. C.S. Lewis once said that it's good to read old books, to learn from old books. Now, he said it'd be great to read books that were written in the future, but you just can't. He was funny. The Bereans listened to what Paul said together, and then what did they do? They examined what they heard by comparing it to the Scripture through the revealed wisdom of the Old Testament prophets who went before them. Now, obviously, the best thing that we can ever do whenever we're intaking uh, Christian teaching is test it against Scripture, and that was the previous point. But what I'm saying now is there's still an example for us to take what we're hearing and test it with what's been said, what's been taught, what's been accepted by the Christians who went before us. We stand on the shoulders of giants. They aren't inerrant. They have their own blind spots. But that doesn't make them unhelpful. We have much to gain and to learn from their study. Again, they have their own blind spots. That's why Scripture is not, excuse me, that's why tradition is not our final authority. I think that's one of the reasons many people are kind of attracted to Baptists. Baptists have kind of gotten reputation. I've, I've noticed it being a people of the book. We seem less liturgical, less tied to the past. And there, there, there's some good to that, to the extent that we want to be known as a people tied to the Bible. But we don't want to be known as a people who have no patience for tradition. We can learn from the community of saints who are around us and from the community of saints who went before us. Every time we come to Scripture, we are, we are interpreting what we read, and we need all the help we can get. We need all the help we can get. Tradition, the past, can be a very useful guide. So I love how a theologian by the name of Kevin Van Hooser put it. He wrote a book called Hearers and Doers. It's all about pastors and churches discipling congregations with the Bible. And he has a great chapter there about interpretation. And just how tricky it can be and how frustrating it can be to be a young Christian or even not a Christian and seeing Christian teachers disagreeing. He said this, interpreters, again, an interpreter is anyone who comes to the Bible and is trying to figure out what it means, interpreters. He says interpreters often need help, like the Ethiopian eunuch who answered Philip's question, do you understand what you are reading? By saying, how can I? unless someone guides me. Tradition, at best, is our Philip, the Spirit's provision of community to aid us in our reading. Scripture alone is the supreme authority, yet God, in His grace, decided that it is not good for Scripture to be alone. End quote. All Scripture should be consumed in the community, the community around us and the community before us. The goal is to be discerning, to read carefully, to listen carefully. We don't want to be moved by fads or by trends. We, want to be the, we don't want to be the kind of people who take out our wallet every time we hear a nice jingle. We don't want to be the kind of people who, you know, vote for any candidate simply based on some slick advertising. But now we need to end this morning why is this such a big deal? Uh, why is being a discerning reader so, so very important? I'd like to talk a lot about the danger of false teaching. Uh, I'm not going to right now. I'm going to leave that for another message. But false teaching is real. It's all around us. There is the sad reality that there are many Christian teachers who say they're preaching the gospel when they're not actually preaching the gospel. And that's a very dangerous thing to do because if you think that words you're hearing are words of life, when there's not enough truth to grant you life, then these individuals are holding your hand on the way to hell. There's a lot at stake. I want to end, though, with this fourth point by saying there is a truth worth dying for. Right. The main thrust of this message is we are to be discerning. Because we, and when I mean we, I mean we the church, we have God's word, which is truth 
worth dying for. And I've said a lot about being discerning, but let me end by reminding you that this truth that we are seeking to understand as comprehensively as we possibly can is worth dying for. Look at verse 13. We read of Jewish leaders from Thessalonica who come 50 miles all the way to Berea to stir up the crowds against Paul. And once again, the apostle is running for his life. He's running for his life. It is, he could be killed if he stays in Berea. But why doesn't he just give up? Like, I'm going to get on a, a boat, and I'm going to go to some place where I can just have, like, those fruity drinks with the umbrellas. And I, I've done a lot of work. You know, Timothy's young. He can, let, let him finish this work. Paul doesn't do that at all. And everywhere he went, someone is threatening his life. I mean, we think we have it bad in 2020. Like, if we, if we could just hit delete on 2020, I think most of us are there. We didn't have it as bad as Paul. Everywhere he went preaching the gospel, people wanted to kill him. And, and eventually, Paul would, in fact, die for the message that he preached. And the question is, why? And when many of us think about Jesus and his ministry, maybe, maybe not us in this room particularly, but as you go talk to people about Jesus and what he did, they think about his miracles, walking on water, healing, and so forth. But the fact is that Jesus spent most of his time teaching. Jesus spent most of his time just opening his mouth and teaching people about the kingdom of God. And of course, Jesus did not teach the way others taught. Others taught by saying, well, Rabbi Gamaliel said this, and Rabbi so-and-so said that Jesus truly said, and I say to you. That was most of his ministry. It was teaching. And eventually, as he went on doing this, doing this work, his disciples got upset because they wanted the healing. They wanted the good stuff, right? They wanted, they wanted demons exercised. They wanted mountains moved. They wanted kingdoms toppled. And you've got Jesus saying, my kingdom is not this world. You know, and eventually, they were like the characters you know, in Peanuts who listened to the teacher, wah, 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 wah. And you get, to, you, you get to the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 66, and it's one of the saddest verses in the Bible where John tells us that many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Like people who spent time with Jesus, they stopped. They no longer walked with him. And Jesus looked around at those who were closest to him, and he said, do you want to go away as well? And listen to what Peter said. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. As we close, I know we're not all in the same place. Well, in more ways than one. But I know we're not all in the same place spiritually. But I want to speak to those of you who might be ready to give up. Right? Those of you who are tired. You know, it's been, a, it's been a hard year, and we're not done. It's taken a toll on marriages, taken a toll on relationships between moms and kids, between dads and moms. And there are some of you who aren't sure if you can go another day, and you're tired of God seeming far from you. And you're tired of your, your heart being like a mile away from your mind, if you know what I mean. Like in your mind, you're affirming all the true things about Christianity. You're checking all the boxes, but you're just tired of your heart not being there. I'm not speaking to all of you. I know that. But I'm speaking to enough of you. And you're wondering if the, if the cost of following Jesus is really worth it. And some of you are wondering, should I even come back to church when all this is done? And what do I have to say to you? Brother, sister, don't give up. Jesus Christ in Scripture has given you the words of life. Words of life. Come to him and look for him in the Bible. That is where he is found. He's not found in an ecstatic experience after you've had a lot to drink. 
He's not found simply as you close your eyes and clear your mind. He's not found in your, your book, your, your favorite book of short stories. He's not found in the warm, soothing voice of your grandmother that you remember speaking to you by the bedside when you were a child. The words of life are found in the Bible. Words so precious to the Apostle Paul that he would rather give up everything, including his own life, than stop proclaiming that good news. And so I would say to those of you ready to give up, instead of giving up, dig in. I think this is maybe one of the best times in my lifetime to dig into the Bible because I have never so acutely felt the insufficiency of the institutions that surround me outside of the church. I've never in my own lifetime felt existentially, personally on the inside, the reality that leaders cannot do for me the things that at times I expect them to do for me. I have never felt as a pastor more acutely my inability to serve you the way you should be served. But then I recognize that I am not your rock. God has given us an authoritative, sturdy, reliable word, a word so reliable that those Bereans, when Paul came in all his pomp and all of his power, they said, wait a second, young man. We're going to first see what the Bible says before coming to believe that what he said was, in fact, the authoritative word of God. And you have so much more than those Bereans had. The answer to you is God's word, the truth that is worth dying for. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we pray for your wisdom in understanding it, knowing it, interpreting it, and applying it to our lives. Father, we know that we are bound together as a local church by the precious blood of Christ. But we know that everything we know about that blood is on display for us in words written in this Bible that you have so graciously provided to us. And so, Father, we pray that we would stand firmly on this word to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.